The hardest person to share a gospel with, share the gospel with, is somebody who already believes he's a good person, right? Somebody who already believes that Romans 3 can't possibly apply to them, which says there's no one who does good, no, not one. Or maybe how do you share the gospel with someone who's been religious his entire life and trusted in his acts of religiosity? There's nothing he feels he has to do. He's qualified. It's me, after all. Well, this morning in our text of Matthew 3, 7 through 12, Matthew 3, 7 through 12, we're going to get a very clear example of how to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to the lost who are proud in their self-deceived, lost condition, their spiritual position with God. They're, they're proud of their useless good works. They're proud maybe of how religious they've been, how faithful and outward acts of piety they've been. And that's our topic this morning. In fact, in our first series here in Matthew, the first coming of King Jesus All we've been doing is observing various elements of the first coming of Christ, which is very appropriate at the Christmas season. And this morning, we're going to look at the element I'm calling the message of the king. What is it that the king wants to get across? What is his message? And the message of the king is brought to us this morning by the forerunner of the king, by John the Baptist. He came preaching on behalf of Jesus to prepare Israel to meet and to worship her king. And now through the lips of John the Baptist, the one sent to make ready the hearts of the people to receive Christ, to see Jesus, we begin to get a taste of what the primary mission of Jesus is on this earth, and that is to proclaim truth. His ministry was a ministry of proclamation to confront his listeners with with the need to place their faith in him. Now this little sermon, in verses 7 through 12 of chapter 3, it's heavy It's weighty, and interestingly, it's filled, it's almost entirely made up of, in fact, metaphors and word pictures. We have snakes, we have two different kinds of trees, we have an axe, we have stones, we have fire three times, we have a winnowing fork, a threshing floor, wheat, chaff, a barn, and that's just in a half dozen verses. It's a message made up entirely of metaphors, illustrations, and word pictures. And you would think that would make it sound very friendly, almost like a children's story. But this message by John the Baptist, which reflects the message of the king who is on his way, with all of its pictures, is absolutely terrifying. It is a terrifying message. Now John's little sermon here has two purposes. And this is the key to understanding the whole thing. And so we can't really proceed accurately without this understanding. The first purpose of the sermon in verses 7 through 12 is to call individuals to personal salvation, to call them to individual salvation in Christ, to place their faith in the Lord Jesus instead of in their so-called good works and their acts of religiosity. Definitely a purpose is individual salvation. But there's a second purpose, and this is the one that is often overlooked and often skipped. John's sermon is to bring national salvation to Israel if Israel will repent. That's his purpose, to bring national salvation to Israel if the nation as a whole. And how do we know the nation is repenting? The nation is represented by her leadership. What her leaders do, the nation will do. Would they repent? Would they place their faith in Christ? Would they believe on him as their Messiah and King? 
And should they repent, should there be national repentance as represented by her leaders, that would bring about the promises of the Old Testament, that the king would then protect Israel from all of her enemies and bring peace and prosperity to the land. Now, I can't emphasize enough this second purpose because it, it really flavors the entire sermon of John of uh, John in Matthew 3, 7 through 12. So remember the context. Here's the context. It's actually found in verses 1 and 2. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the context, the kingdom of heaven. And remember last time, we saw that the kingdom of heaven can only be the mediatorial kingdom of King Jesus reigning on the earth, physically here, that kingdom predicted hundreds of times in the Old Testament. Christ the King, physically on the throne of his ancestor David, as per the promises God made to King David a thousand years before Christ. Now, why is this concept so important that this is about the kingdom? Because John's sermon has partial application to the coming church age in which we're partaking right now. But the primary thrust of this message is looking beyond our age. It's looking to the kingdom of Christ, to the inauguration of this kingdom. That's what he's talking about. Now, as we're preparing to look at the text, let me just put one more little dash of salt on this to help flavor it a little bit, wrap our minds around the proper context of John's message. I think our default, our our tendency is to, to kind of automatically assume that this message applies solely to the church. And there are definitely some continuities, there are definitely some overlaps, especially when we get to the part about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But as far as John the Baptist was concerned, and this is so important for us to understand, as far as John the Baptist was concerned, from his vantage point, with the knowledge he had, he had no concept of a coming church age after the rejection of Christ. He didn't have a concept of that. His understanding was that Christ had come and he was going to bring his kingdom in now. Now remember that when John would be arrested later on in in Matthew's gospel, he sends a message to Jesus. And you remember what the message was? Are you really the Messiah or should we be looking for someone else? Because in John's vantage point, he assumed the kingdom was coming right then. And this is very important because John was given limited understanding that he was to preach that the king had arrived The king was coming soon and the repentance was the only way to enter the kingdom. And so that's why there's an urgency to John. He doesn't preach sermons like, you know, you'll have a couple thousand years here to figure this out. No, it's the kingdom is here. It's now. It's it's near. So with that context, understanding that John is preaching toward individual salvation and for national salvation of Israel, In light of the fact that the king has arrived, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the kingdom of heaven is near, it's imminent, it's close, now this terrifying sermon by John the Baptist will begin to fall into place for us. John has been baptizing great crowds of people who are confessing their sins. They've been spiritually prepared for the coming of the king. And as John is baptizing the repentant, we pick up the story in verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. 
For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. And the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. One more time. The key to understanding this text is to remember the context of the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's preaching to the Jews, be in the kingdom when the king inaugurates the kingdom. So now we can examine the message of the king to the unbeliever, to the apostate nation of Israel. And we could make a subtitle for this, How to Preach the Gospel to the Stubborn, Unsaved Religious Person. How do you do that? Now this is a a rich and a packed message from John the Baptist. And so I'm going to ask you to be good listeners today. I trust your listening skills. That is how you have operated for so many years. I don't want to try to simplify this message. I I can't boil this down to two major points. I'd like to break John's message down into 10 statements of truth. And the reason we're doing this is I want to give you 10 statements of truth which present the gospel of Christ to the stubborn, to the unsaved, to the self-righteous person, or to the nation in this case. And so I'm trusting that we can walk through this together at a relatively good pace. The first statement of truth, God's wrath will begin the kingdom. God's wrath will begin the kingdom. John's opening line has two unorthodox sermon introduction techniques. First, insult your audience. And second, mock your audience. That's not a usual way to open a sermon. Of course, he's speaking to the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism in verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for his baptism, he said to them, You brew the vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? The very first mention of the Pharisees and Sadducees identifies them as hypocritical. We've talked about them before, but just very briefly, in Jesus' day, there were approximately 6,000 Pharisees, and they, even their name means the separated ones. Their main emphasis was a rigorous adherence to the law of God, which is good, but then they began com- coming up with their oral tradition and, and espousing the oral tradition as some sort of hedge around the law that as long as you keep these other laws that they just made up, you won't even come close to breaking the law of God. And now those oral traditions were elevated to the point of Scripture that you must obey those to be pleasing with God, pleasing to God as well. And that's the classic definition of legalism. In fact, Jesus would call them out later as those who burden people with endless rules and regulations. And then you had the Sadducees. These included wealthy priests who had no use for the endless rules of the Pharisees. They tended to be more pro-Roman They tended to stress human freedom more than the Pharisees did. They denied any sort of afterlife or resurrection. They believed only the Torah, the Pentateuch. They didn't recognize other books of the Old Testament. What would we call them today? We would call them unsaved conservatives and unsaved liberals. Generally speaking, they were at odds with each other. But in this case, they had a common enemy. And that common enemy was John the Baptist and soon to be Jesus. This is someone that was instantly 
having much more spiritual influence than they were. And you notice there's a conjunction here at the very beginning, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming. It says that there's a contrast. The rank and file Jew, what, what are they doing? They're in the waters of baptism. They're confessing their sins, but now this is something different. The response of the religious elite is different and they're about to be verbally thrashed by John. The text doesn't tell us why they're here. They most likely have come to participate in the baptism, not because they're truly repentant, but because they want to make sure that the people that they're always trying so hard to make follow them see how pious and righteous they are as well. But whatever the reason, John doesn't see them as genuine. He sees them as spiritual frauds. And he opens his message by identifying their family, identifying their father. He calls them a brood of vipers, a bunch of baby snakes. In other words, they're the spiritual children of the deceiving serpent in the Garden of Eden, Satan himself. In John 8, 44, Jesus told those who tried to maintain their own self-righteousness, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. The Apostle John, not John the Baptist, he wrote in 1 John 3.10 that all human beings are in two categories, children of God and children of the devil. And so here, John the Baptist isn't just picking a slithery animal to make a really good bad name to call someone. He's identifying their spiritual heritage, that they're frauds just like their father, Satan. And John's sarcasm here is biting. He says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And immediately we have John referencing the coming wrath of God. And this will characterize the beginning of the kingdom of of Christ on earth. And this isn't new information, by the way. This is straight out of the Old Testament. We could take a lot of time on this. I'll just give you one sample, though. Probably the most classic sample is Zechariah 14, which describes the return of Christ as a unique day in which he destroys all of his enemies with the result that Jesus Christ is king over all the earth. And so here, John exposes the Pharisees and the Sadducees as not being genuine converts. And we ought to emphasize the you here. Who warned you to flee from wrath? Basically saying, it wasn't me. I didn't do it. I didn't warn you. You haven't heard the message from me, so you've heard a false message. They're unrepentant, and John's not going to baptize them. This is a contrast to the repentant coming and confessing their sins. God's kingdom will begin with wrath. Here's a second statement of the truth. You must repent to avoid God's wrath. You must repent to avoid God's wrath. Brings us to verse 8. Very simple statement. John tells them, Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. John demands that they produce fruit, evidence in their lives of a repentant and humble internal faith in the Lord. And this is not a a metaphor drawn out of nowhere here. Producing fruit is a metaphor often in Matthew for a repentant lifestyle. Matthew 7, beginning in verse 16, you know them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. Matthew 12.33, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. Matthew 13.8, others fell on the good soil and were yielding a crop. Matthew 13.23, the one on whom seed was sown the good soil. This is the man who hears the word, understands it, who bears fruit. 
This is a common metaphor. James 3, verse 18 uses the picture this way. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace, meaning those who make peace with God. As a matter of fact, the association of genuine repentance with the bearing of spiritual fruit, a lifestyle wholly devoted to God and obeying Him, this is common to the whole Bible. It's not just a New Testament concept. Psalm 1, verse 3, He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its what? Its fruit in its season. Proverbs eleven thirty: The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. Isaiah three ten: Say to the righteous that it will go well with them, for they will eat the fruit of their deeds. Hosea ten uses this metaphor. Verses twelve and thirteen. And in fact, if we had time, I would have loved to have spent some time in Isaiah five one through seven. This is a long poem, a long song, where the Lord portrays Israel as as a choice vineyard that God has has hoped would produce good grapes, but instead it produces worthless grapes. And because of this, judgment is coming. And so when John told the Pharisees and when John told the Sadducees, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, they they weren't looking at each other going, oh, I wonder what that means. That's a new picture. We've never heard that before. Of course they'd heard it before. It was well established in the scriptures of the Old Testament. The others in the water with John the Baptist were showing the fruit of repentance, weren't they? They were publicly confessing sin. They were humiliating and humbling themselves before the Lord. They were eager to live righteously before the Lord. It's a third statement of truth in the way you preach the gospel to an unrepentant unbeliever. Self-righteousness will not avoid wrath. Self-righteousness will not avoid wrath. Now, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they knew exactly what John meant when he called them a brood of vipers. John is saying, your father is the devil. They knew that. And we know that they knew this because John answers their retort, their objection of being called children of Satan before they even say it. He knows what they're going to say. Verse 9, And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. John's basically telling them what they're going to say before they say it. Do not say we have Abraham for our father. In other words, don't say, well, I'm special. Don't say I'm unique. Don't say I'm spiritually safe because of my DNA, because of my, my father Abraham. And so John makes certain that they don't think that they're special just because of their heritage. And he says, I love this. This is so insulting. He says that, God could make sons of Abraham out of rocks if he wanted to. And that's like saying you could have rocks in your head. Maybe that'll make you a son of Abraham. It's very insulting. You see, these wicked, righteous, self-righteous, religious men, they'd placed their faith in their heritage. And so what was the result? Their life hadn't changed. Now, here's the irony. The irony is that they worked so hard to appear outwardly righteous, outwardly pious living holy lives, but they trusted in that. Their outward actions were translating in their minds to being deserving of being in the kingdom of God. And so John gives them a challenge. Prove you're descended from Abraham. Prove that you are truly his child. Because Abraham was a man who did follow the Lord. He was saved by faith. Genesis 15, 6, very clear about this, that Abraham believed in God and he counted it to him as righteousness. He was saved by faith. 
This is the doctrine of justification, the imputed or credited righteousness of God, given not by works, but received by faith. And again, this is so important that we understand that the context is the coming kingdom of Christ. And it's paramount to understand that here because the Israelites in John's day, they were taught as a matter of routine that they will enter the kingdom automatically by virtue of their family, by virtue of the fact that they're of Israel. That's what people were taught. Jesus addressed the same hypocrisy and self-righteousness in John chapter 8. He confronted those who were boasting of their heritage he said in John 8, 37, I know that you are Abraham's seed, yet you're seeking to kill me. He says this, I speak the things which I have seen from my father, seen with my father rather, therefore you also do the things which you have heard from your father. See also brood of vipers. They answered him and said, Abraham is our father. And Jesus, he nails them. If you are Abraham's children, you would seek to do the deeds of Abraham. You would act like him. But now you're seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. There's a fourth statement. How do you preach to the recalcitrant unbeliever? Prejudgment has already begun. Prejudgment has already begun. This is where the terrifying part really begins to come out. Verse 10, And the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The picture is very clear. The tree, the person that doesn't bear fruit is useless and is worthless. And it's cut down and used for firewood. Now, the tree and the fruit are metaphors for a person and his life. But to be very clear, the fire is not metaphorical. The fire is related to the punishment of evildoers in hell. Jesus taught in Matthew 5.22 of the guilty going into the fiery hell. He taught in Matthew 13.42 that the false religious will be thrown into the fiery furnace. Jesus taught in Matthew 18.8 8 and 9 that if you love your sins so much that you must stay loyal to your sin, then you will be cast into the fiery hell. And Jesus warned in Matthew 25, 41 that when He returns, those who refuse to repent and follow Him will be cast into the eternal fire. But as if the very real threat of hell wasn't enough, John here isn't just painting a picture to the Pharisees and Sadducees of someday, if you don't repent, hell is in your future. No, it's much worse than that. Look at the picture. These false religious men are the trees which produce no fruit. And John says that the axe is already chopping away. It's already laid at the root. It's already happening. Already is an adverb paired up with this present tense verb, laid at the root. And it depicts those who reject the kingdom message of Christ, the kingdom message of the gospel. They're already set aside for judgment. So there's a hurry. There's an urgency. There's not a sense of, you can kind of wait around and make your judgment. And no, the, the axe is there. It's chopping right now. Judgment is already beginning. The rejection of the gospel message hastens the loss to the judgment seat of Christ. Those who are in the midst of, re- of rejecting Christ are already being chopped down. They're already sliding down an icy slope toward a fiery judgment. They're already one heart attack, one stroke, one moment away from death. 
This week in the news depicted the sad story of a young woman in seemingly good health, working out with weights with a class at her gym. And the video of this went viral this week. And she was holding the weight in, in her hands and she just stood up and just went down like a ton of bricks and was dead instantly. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for men to die once and after that comes judgment. It is inescapable. Now someone might say, You know, I can stand up to God. Or I can talk God into accepting me. I mean, after all, I was a Boy Scout. I've done all kinds of stuff. Or... I'm an independent spirit. I'm the captain of my own fate. I don't bow to anyone. Or maybe even to say, I'm powerful because I've declared my freedom. I've declared my liberation from God. Well, anybody who says they have any power has a problem. Here's our fifth statement. The king possesses all the power. The king possesses all the power. Any power anybody thinks they have is only loaned to them by God. Verse 11. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He goes on to say he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So here John compares his baptism to that of Jesus. John's baptism is with water and is merely preparatory. It doesn't in and of itself accomplish salvation in any way at all. It's just a public demonstration of repentance and preparation to know the king. We'll get to the baptism that Jesus brings in a a moment, the baptism of the Spirit. But I want to concern ourselves here with the first part of verse 11, that the coming king is mighty. This is very important because John here elevates Jesus to the position of deity, that he is God. That John isn't worthy to perform even the most menial of tasks for Jesus. He says that Jesus is mightier than I. It's a word that means stronger, more powerful, more potent. And in fact, in certain contexts, this Greek word can even mean to be violent and to be the ultimate warrior. He's mighty. You recall what Hebrews 1.3 says of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that He's the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of God's nature and He upholds all things by the word of His power. And some of you might ask, well, what things is Jesus upholding? What what things are they? Colossians 1.16 answers the question. Colossians 1.16 says that Jesus Christ created all things by the will of His Father. And in verse 17, He, that is Jesus, holds all things together. So what is it that Jesus is holding together? What are the things? Everything that's ever been created. He's holding it all together. That is mighty power. That means he has all of it. You don't have any. Why did that woman suddenly stand up and her heart stop and she's dead before she hits the ground? Because God has all the power and she had none. And so the person who thinks they'll somehow resist the power of Christ or argue back or declare independence from God need only wait to the end of life to find out how eternally wrong and eternally doomed they are. And by the way, I I love it when people assume that God will let you speak. Why would you make that assumption? Romans 3 says every mouth will be what? Shut. There's a sixth statement. Sixth statement of truth. The king will qualify kingdom citizens. The king will qualify kingdom citizens. At the end of verse 11, John declares that Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit. 
Now, it seems that John is either speaking hypothetically or he's broadened his audience to everyone who's listening. He says, I'll baptize you with water. He, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. If John is speaking hypothetically only to the Pharisees, he's basically saying, if you were to confess your sins, a condition for John's baptism, then that is only a baptism of repentance. It's not the full spiritual baptism of the Spirit coming from Christ. Now, we kind of stepped on a little bit of a theological landmine here, the baptism of the Spirit. And I know a lot of you come from different backgrounds. The work of the Holy Spirit in those who become believers in Christ is multi-layered, it's wondrous. And because the doctrine of the Holy Spirit historically has been abused and maligned and misused, it's vague, it's, it's filled with a lot of charismatic nonsense not even remotely based in Scripture, I want to take just a few minutes and be as precise as we can. In very short form, the Holy Spirit's actions to save the lost include at least seven different aspects or seven different layers. And we just want to be precise. The first layer we call regeneration. And this is review for many of you, I understand. Regeneration is the the spiritual making alive of spiritually dead people. John 3, 8, Jesus said, The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound and do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who has been born of the Spirit. This is not a decision a person makes. This is what Jesus calls being born again. This is God the Spirit moving according to the will of God. The second layer, the sealing of the Spirit. The sealing of the Spirit. The believer in Christ is permanently preserved with the Holy Spirit as the guarantee of salvation. Ephesians 1.13 says that the Holy Spirit is the down payment, the deposit. The fact that you have the Holy Spirit seals you for eternity. You have a third layer, the indwelling of the Spirit. The indwelling of the Spirit is what it sounds like, the Spirit of God residing in you. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says the Spirit of God dwells in you. That's not metaphorical, that's not hypothetical, it's true. The Holy Spirit is here. That's why it's always so amusing to me when a a church gathers or at least a bunch of people in a building that says church on it and they beg for the Holy Spirit to come. How do we know the Holy Spirit's here? Because you're here. We're indwelt. There's a fourth layer, the control of the Spirit. The control of the Spirit, more often called the filling of the Spirit. That's the available power of the Spirit to give you the wherewithal and the power to obey the Word of God. Ephesians 5.18 tells us to be filled with the Spirit, but Colossians 3.16 explains what it means. What that means is let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, meaning you know it and you obey it. There's a fifth layer, the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is the evidence of a changed life of obedience, and we even get a list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And you have a sixth layer, the gifts of the Spirit. These are for the believer to use in service to one another. Every Christian has spiritual gifts. In Romans 12, that list there is the short one of preaching and service and teaching and exhortation and giving and leadership and mercy. And that's how we run the church. That's how we minister to one another and alongside each other. And then the seventh layer, the baptism of the Spirit. Literally, the immersing of the believer by the Spirit of God. This is the assimilating of the believer into the body of Christ, that you are now a part of the church universal. 
into the group of people who are genuine worshipers of the Lord. Contrary to charismatic theology, the baptism of the Spirit is not an experience. It is not something you sense. It's not something that happens when a maniacal preacher bangs you on the forehead. That's not when it happens. All Christians are baptized in the Spirit at the moment of their conversion. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 cannot be more clear. For also by one Spirit we were, past tense, all baptized into one body. We were all made, past tense, to drink of one Spirit. You're immersed by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. The baptism of the Spirit is never said in Scripture to be something that you seek after. It's not something you agonize in prayer for. The person who repents of their sin because of the regenerating work of the Spirit is automatically baptized into the body of Christ. It's not an event sometime after salvation. No Christian should walk around praying for the baptism of the Spirit. If you're truly saved, it already happened. It can't be obtained by any act. It can't be obtained by any prayer. It is solely the work of God. And by this baptism of the Holy Spirit, being immersed and brought into the people of God, the believer is then qualified to enter into the coming kingdom, the kingdom of Christ the King. This is the only way to be qualified to enter the kingdom. There is no other way. Now, from John the Baptist's vantage point, what's the significance of the Holy Spirit baptism? John is preaching to Israel, and again, almost certainly has no conception of a coming age of the church. He's preaching that Messiah is coming to set up his kingdom, and it could happen any time. So for John, the baptism of the Spirit was, in basic terms, the means by which the true people of God would be known. It was their identifying mark. Now, John took a, a very brief detour from the subject of the coming wrath of God, but he returns immediately to it. And now the question is, and he hasn't said it yet, he hasn't given the answer, who will actually administer the wrath of God? And this is the thing that surprises many unbelievers. Here's our seventh statement. The king is the instrument of God's wrath. The king himself is the instrument of God's wrath. Verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor and he will gather his wheat into the barn but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now it becomes clear that Jesus is the one who is chopping the trees down. He is the one with the axe in his hand. He is the one who will throw them into the fires of hell. His ministry of judgment here is compared to a harvest in which the good grain is gathered and, and the chaff, the leftover useless part of the grain, is burned in the fire. The winnowing fork was used to toss the harvested and threshed grain in the air and the wind blows the chaff aside while the heavier grain falls back down. The grain is gathered up. The chaff is swept up and burned. And this is exactly what Jesus said was given to him. John 5.22 says, For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. And what's the result? Burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Literally, fireproof fire. Fire that can't go out. We have an interesting word that we use. It's exactly the same as the Greek word asbestos. Asbestos, if we say it that way. That you can't, it, it doesn't, fire doesn't work with it. So this is an irony here. The fire is so powerful that, that it can't be put out. It can't be dealt with. There's an eighth statement. 
We're going to accelerate now. No one will escape the king's verdict. No one will escape the king's verdict. Did you notice that John says in verse 12 that Jesus will thoroughly clear his threshing floor? In other words, the king will personally deal with every single person who has ever been born, who's ever lived, who's ever died. Every single one. None will escape his verdict, and there are only two possible verdicts. The first possibility, redeemed and saved. Redeemed and saved by virtue of having repented of sin and received the righteousness of Christ as credited to you instead of your sinful life by virtue of receiving the death of Christ as as full, complete payment for your sin to satisfy the coming wrath of God. Redeemed and saved, the only other verdict is possible. Unredeemed and lost. Unredeemed and lost, guilty. Guilty by virtue of having violated God's law and God's holiness all throughout life without sorrow, without remorse, without seeking forgiveness, without seeking the mercy of God found only in Christ. No one will escape judgment. And if I could just add this to whether or not you like that fact is absolutely irrelevant. And whether or not you believe that fact is absolutely irrelevant. He is your creator. And he has all rights over you, whether you acknowledge it or not. doesn't matter. There's a ninth statement of truth. The king will bring his own to the kingdom. The king will bring his own to the kingdom. We've been talking all this time about the coming kingdom of Christ, and maybe you've had a nagging question, and that is, hey, you know, what if Christ's kingdom doesn't come until after I die? What about that? It's the same question the Thessalonians basically had of Paul. Well, verse 12 gives a tremendous promise from the king. He will gather his wheat into the barn. Or as Jesus said in John 14, 3, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. It's the same thing that 1 Thessalonians 4 speaks of, that once you're with the Lord, you will always be with the Lord. And then when Christ returns, Revelation 19 says that his saints, those gathered in his barn, so to speak, will be with him. And boy, I would love to end right there. But to be true to John's sermon, we must end where he ends. And there's a tenth statement. The king will separate the unrepentant from the kingdom forever. The king will separate the unrepentant from the kingdom forever. They are the chaff. They are the ones burned with unquenchable fire. And now, for this moment, we come to an interpretive issue which is sort of like driving 75 miles an hour and hitting a giant puddle in the road and you're instantly going 30. And so that's kind of what we have to do for a moment. It's worth examining because there's a lot of confusion about this particular issue. The end of verse 11. John says that the king will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. What is this baptism of fire speaking of? In my estimation, there are three major views of this issue. And so we're going to let the car hit the big puddle here for a moment and let's break this down so we can be as precise as possible about this truth. View number one, the baptism of fire is spiritual purification. The spiritual purification of the baptism of the Spirit. That that it's the same thing. That the baptism of the Spirit happens and spiritual purification happens also. And that makes sense theologically. And this is primarily based on the construction of the sentence in Greek. You have the, the preposition translated with, 
followed by a noun, the Holy Spirit, connected by and, followed by a second noun, fire. Very often, that construction means that the two nouns are speaking of the same event. In fact, it could be what uh, those who are uh, experts in the literature of the Bible, it could be what's called a hendiasis, where two things actually mean only one. It's two things put together, describing one singular event. The advocates of that view would also point to Acts 2, verse 3, where fire is mentioned in connection with the Spirit's baptism on the day of Pentecost. Acts 2, verse 3, there appeared to them tongues like fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. Now, how strong is that view? I don't think it's that strong, actually. Uh, Opponents to the view would point out that the closeness of the grammatical construction between Holy Spirit and fire often means they speak of the same thing, but not every time. doesn't have to be every time. And by the way, the purification aspect of fire is never stated here. It's just assumed. There's no, there's no context to make that assumption. They would also point out that Acts 2 verse 3, the reference to fire appearing over the heads of the apostles, very clearly says that they were tongues as of or like fire. Nothing in Acts 2 3, by the way, connects these tongues of fire or as of fire or like fire to any sort of purification or cleansing of any kind. There's no connection there. And the major text in all of the Bible that connects the Holy Spirit and cleansing or purification doesn't use the metaphor of fire. It uses the metaphor of water. Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 25, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. This is exactly what Jesus was referencing when he told Nicodemus in John 3, verse 5, that a person must be born of water and born of the Spirit, meaning being cleansed from sin by God and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, given the Holy Spirit. The apostles affirm this same connection. For example, in Titus 3, 5, he saved us not by works which we did in righteousness, but according to his mercy through the washing of regeneration, not the burning, but the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. And so ultimately, view number one, that the fire is just the purification aspect of the baptism of the Spirit, it rests solely on a grammatical construction, which is sometimes helpful, but not all the time. So I would call that a pretty weak view. There's a second view, and that is that the baptism of fire is speaking of the fire of judgment. And in favor of that view is some good evidence. We have in very close proximity two contrasts. You have the good tree and the bad tree. You have the wheat and the chaff. And so it makes sense that right between those, you would have a third contrast, baptism in the spirit and baptism in fire. But even more convincingly is the fact that fire is referenced both before and after verse 11. In verse 10, the bad trees are thrown into the fire of judgment. In verse 12, the chaff is thrown into the fire of judgment. It is extremely unlikely that John is suddenly changing the meaning of fire in the middle of those three rapidly uh, given references. And in fact, a, a really quick survey of all the word pictures that are repeated in this little sermon shows us something. Fruit is used more than once and always, every time, means the outcome of someone's life. Trees, used more than once, always means people. Brew the vipers is used one time, but there's an implied second time when John tells them that they're about to claim that Abraham, not Satan, 
is their father. And so brood of the vipers always means children of Satan. And so we would expect that in six short verses in which fire is used three times, when all the other multiple uses of a word picture always mean the same thing, that one's going to mean the same thing also. This is a much more convincing view. But I said there's a third view, third major view, and the third major view doesn't contradict the second one. It builds on it. That the baptism of fire is the judgment of God. That's the second view. It adds some depth to the second view. Here's the third view. The baptism of fire ultimately speaks of the judgment of Christ when he returns. The baptism of fire ultimately speaks of the judgment of Christ when he returns. Let me give you four reasons why this is the best choice. So you understand how we arrive at this conclusion. First one we'll call the timing reason. The timing reason. It is true that the grammatical construction I mentioned earlier means that those two things are very closely related. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of fire. doesn't mean they have to be the same thing, but they can be happening at the same time. And that would account for the closeness grammatically. That's not a strong reason, but it is legitimate. There's a stronger reason. Reason number two is the context reason. The context reason, we've already seen that John's major thrust in this sermon is clearly the coming kingdom of Christ. It's clearly futuristic. Remember, the context of his message is the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We already showed this is speaking of the future reign of Christ on earth. And so the baptism of the Spirit here cannot only be referring to the church age event of individual salvation, but it must also refer to the eschatological, the end times event in which all people will be dealt with by Christ, either by the pouring out of the Spirit or by the pouring out of judgment. There's a third reason. We'll call this one the Pentecost reason. The Pentecost reason. Under the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter preached the very first Christian sermon to the church and his main text to explain the coming of the Spirit so clearly seen at Pentecost, his main text was Joel chapter 2, beginning in verse 28, that in the last day, God would pour out his spirit on all mankind. But now we have to be very careful here because Pentecost was only the beginning. It was only a shadow. It was only a partial fulfillment of that prophecy. How do we know this? Because the context of the rest of Joel chapter 2 the ultimate pouring out of the Spirit happens in the context of what Joel 2.31 calls the day of the Lord, the day of the judgment of the earth. And as the Spirit is being poured out on many, such as Zechariah 12.10, when God pours out the Spirit of repentance on Israel, as the Spirit is being poured out on many, what does Joel 2, verse 30, the same event, the same time, in time's prophecy, What does Joel 2.30 say is also being poured out along with the Spirit? Fire. The fires of judgment. Literal fire. The metaphorical fire of wrath. One more reason why this must speak of the coming judgment of Christ. We'll call this the kingdom setup reason. The kingdom setup reason. When the king arrives to set up his kingdom... One of his first acts will be to gather all the survivors of the Great Tribulation. There will be a judgment of Jewish survivors, a judgment of Gentile survivors. The judgment of Gentile survivors is often often called the uh, sheep and goat judgment as recorded in Matthew 25. And what will he say to those who have rejected him and did not place their faith in Christ? He will say to them, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal, what? Fire. This is airtight. 
This is speaking of the eschatological end times coming judgment, which, remember, in John the Baptist's view, could be any moment. Ultimately, the baptism of the Spirit and the fire is fulfilled most fully in the end days before and during the return of Christ in one massive outpouring of the Spirit of God that will affect salvation for some and judgment for most. Remember, John's message here is universal concerning the gospel. It is specific to the unsaved leaders of Israel. It's a warning that if they want to be in the kingdom of Messiah, they must repent. So, how do you proclaim the gospel to the stubborn, self-righteous person who thinks he inherently deserves God's favor? I've given you the sermon outline. God's wrath will begin in the kingdom. You must repent to avoid God's wrath. Self-righteousness will not avoid wrath. Pre-judgment has already begun. The kingdom, the king possesses all the power. The king will qualify kingdom citizens. The king is the instrument of God's wrath. No one will escape the king's verdict. The king will bring in his own to the kingdom and the king will separate the unrepentant from the kingdom forever. That is the gospel in no uncertain terms. Now the good news is is that we look farther down into the history of the church and we see that some of the Pharisees got saved. Some of the Pharisees bent the knee to Christ and we praise the Lord for that. And so that gives us hope that it's not too late. It's not too late if you think your life is too far gone, if you think that Perhaps you've done too much. It's not too late. You bend the knee. You repent. And Christ will forgive you. He promises. Let's pray for just a moment. Our Father, we thank you for this time in the Word. We thank you for the uh, wonder of the Gospel. We thank you for the message of John the Baptist. And Lord, I pray for a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, hearing this message, that they would run to the cross, they would repent of their sins, and that they would come to the Savior who would have been their judge, and that they would find rest from their sin, find rest in Christ. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.